Well, good morning. Oh, there is no question. Summer is here, is it? <laughs> Man, it is hot. I tell you, we got, uh, I was up in Ojai yesterday, 102 degrees in Ojai. And uh, you're thinking, yeah, it's up in the mountains, you know. And wow, it was hot. Dropped down in 15 minutes to Ventura, 77. So uh, I tell you, just, it all depends on the level in life you're operating at. <laughs> so everything, everything depends there. Hey, glad you're here. My name is Pastor Mike. If this is your very first time, want to welcome you. Uh, like I said a few minutes ago, we do have your, uh, your program there inside. Our, a lot of things going on in the church, and so you can kind of find out uh, there. If you're brand new here at Rocky Peak, uh, we have a dessert uh, about once a month in my house after Saturday night service. Uh, well, it's just Saturday night. You don't have to come to the service, but anyway, Saturday night. And, uh, and so if you just write welcome to dessert on the back of that, if you're new here and you want to uh, get to know Lynn and I and hear a little bit about the church, we'd love to have you for that. But uh, other than that, uh, just good to be here. I'm excited uh, to be continuing our series in the Gospel of John. So I'm going to pray and uh, ready to go. Are you ready to go? Okay, good, good. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for what you're doing here at our church, God, the way you're waking us up, calling us on uh, week after week, uh, speaking, challenging, sh shaping, molding. And we're excited. We're excited about you. We're excited about what you're doing in our lives and, Lord, today is another step in the journey, and we don't want to waste a day. We don't want to waste one day in following you. We don't want to waste one weekend. We want to get uh, everything you have for us each week to empower us to live that week. And so we pray that you'd come, you'd be our teacher, you'd be our leader, you'd be our Lord, that your spirit would speak to us in supernatural ways now, and you'd call us to show us what it means to embrace you not only as a God of love but as a God of light. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our story starts today in Jerusalem, and it's, uh, it's Passover, so it means it's the spring of the year, and, and he's about 30 years old, and, and he's been coming to Passover every year with his family from the time he was a little boy. This year, though, he's coming not so much as a, as a participant, he's coming as a prophet, and as we watch him that day, he's walking towards the temple, this massive complex, started by Herod the Great almost 50 years before, one of the the, the wonders of the ancient world, surrounded by the huge wall, two football fields long on every side. And we're watching him today as he, he walks up the steps and through the huge gates. He goes inside past the massive pillars holding up the, the large stone porticos overhead that kind of created por a porch inside the whole perimeter of the temple. He's walked in, he stopped to, to get his bearings, and then he headed for the southeast corner for an area that was called the, the Court of the Gentiles. It was called the Court of the Gentiles because it was the only place that Gentiles were allowed to go in the temple to seek the God of Israel. God had said, my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations, but the only place that they could really go to find out about this God of Israel, to meet with him, was in the Court of the Gentiles. And as he went there, it wasn't the first time, but this time it was with a different agenda. In the court of the Gentiles, the, the spiritual leaders of the nation had turned it into a spiritual rummage sale, a, uh, a bazaar. Um, they, they would sell souvenirs for the thousands of pilgrims that would come to Jerusalem. You know, I was there in Jerusalem. And... Uh, and, and there they would sell the sheep and the goats and the doves for the sacrifices. And uh, in addition to that, they, they would exchange your money. It doesn't matter where you came from. You got euros, you got dollars, doesn't make any difference. They'll turn into shekels so you can spend them here at, at the temple. It was a, a religious money-making scheme right in this place where, where the nations of the earth were supposed to come and to meet with God. Right there, the religious leaders had turned it into kind of a, a money-making religious scheme. And it's for this area that he came that day. And so he walked behind some of the cattle and sheep. The air was, was foul. It was full of the smell of manure, urine-soaked hay from the animals. He went back in the back where it was dark, and he found some ropes, and he tied them together. And then he went crazy. Today we're going to be continuing this series that we've been in now for the last uh, month. It's, uh, it's called Revealed. You can see it on the walls. Uh, it's a series, um, it's called God Revealed, God in the Flesh. And it's a series about the life and teaching of Jesus of Nazareth 
as seen through the eyes of one of his closest companions, perhaps his, his best friend, the Apostle John. And if you were here last week, we were in chapter 2, and in chapter 2, Jesus does his first miracle. If you remember, it's at, it's at this uh, city named Cana. He goes to a wedding. They run out of wine. It's a, it's a major crisis. And, and so to save this young couple, to help his mother out, he makes 150 gallons of the good stuff, the best wine. And it's a picture, as we saw last week, it's, it's Messiah time, the, the time that the prophets predicted would come when the, when the mountains would flow with new wine, when Messiah came, the time when it would be a, a, a wedding between heaven and earth, God and his people. And, and last week we saw this picture of Jesus, the one who reveals God to us as this life-affirming God, this God who has come to love us, doesn't matter where we've come from or where we've been or what we've done. He's come to love us, to restore us, to heal us. He walks into the crises of our life. He walks into our lives that have run out of wine, and he provides 150 gallons of abundance. He's the God who affirms life. He's the God who comes to give life. That's who he is. And last week we saw this side of Jesus, this life-affirming God. But this week in the second half of chapter 2, we see a very different side to Jesus. It's the Jesus who comes in judgment. And so if you have your Bibles, let's turn to John chapter 2, and we'll start at verse 12. John 2 and verse 12. He says, uh, after this, so uh, after this means after he had multiplied the wine uh, in Cana. Uh, he went down to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was about 16 miles away. It was on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. This was going to be his home base of operations throughout his ministry. So he went down to Capernaum, and he went with his mother. Of course, she was there at the wedding. So he went with his mother and his brothers, interesting, and, and his disciples. Uh, the New Testament tells us in the in book of Mark that Jesus came from a big family. That uh, often you don't think of this. Often we think, I think we often think of him as the only child. But, uh, uh, but he was, uh, he definitely had the first son complex, you know, first, first kid complex. Um, but, uh, but he came from a big family. He, he had at least, a, at least a family of seven. We're told he had uh, four brothers are named in Mark and uh, at least and some sisters. So a minimum of, of seven if you do the math. And so apparently uh, his, his mother, uh, some of his brothers, his disciples, his first five disciples that we met in chapter one that were with Macana, they head down to Capernaum. Now, and they stay there for a few days. Now, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jewish Passover happens in the spring of every year, and, uh, and it's a big deal in, in Israel. Uh, uh, one of the big three annual feasts that uh, the Jewish uh, people were required to attend in Jerusalem, and uh, it was actually an eight-day feast, the, day, the feast of Passover, followed by seven days, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so it was an eight-day feast, and it was a big deal. It was sort of their 4th of July. It was uh, celebrating the time when God had delivered the nation from slavery in Egypt and turned them into a nation. And so it's a big patriotic deal. And uh, Jesus went every year um, with his, his family. We're told that in Luke, that he'd grown up going every year to Passover. And so uh, in the Gospel of John, we're going to see three Passovers. Uh, we'll see this one at the beginning of his ministry. We'll see one in chapter 6 a year later when he multiplies the loaves and the fishes. We'll see another one a year later when he's arrested and killed. So we'll see three Passovers. So this is the first one. And so Passover is a big deal. And uh, this year he goes to Passover, though, not so much as a participant but as a prophet. And, uh, and he goes to the temple. And the temple in Jerusalem was huge. It's hard for us to probably imagine how important the temple was to Jewish life because we're, we're not like that. We don't think of God like dwelling in a certain building. You've got to be there. But for the Jew, it's like this is the place where God dwells, and, and it was massive. The temple uh, project had been started by King Herod the Great. There's all these Herods. King Herod the Great has all these little Herods running around that show up later in the Gospels. But, but Herod the Great was an amazing builder, and uh, he started this temple project 46 years before the story today. And he's been going on for 46 years. And so what he did is he leveled the top of the temple mount where the old temple was, leveled it. And then he brought in these huge stones that had been quarried out of local quarries. 
that they were catches 15 feet long. Most of them were 15 feet long, 4 feet wide, 4 feet high, weighed 30 tons. The largest ones were 45 feet long, 10 feet wide, 15 feet deep, weighed 100 tons. So what he did, he picture this, he leveled the top of the mountains, and then at the sides where the valleys would go, he filled it in with, he, he brought these like bricks, huge bricks, so to speak, these stones, and built this massive platform so you could build this tremendous temple complex. And on top of this temple complex, then it was, it was two football fields uh, long on every side, like a square. And uh, in fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, um, which I'm sure we'll do someday. Um, but as you go to Jerusalem today, you can go and you can see these stones. In fact, some of the stones are in the Wailing Wall, uh, if you go there today. But if you go underground in the tunnels, you can see the foundations of that temple, these huge, massive stones that are still there. And so, anyway, uh, uh, the, uh, the temple mount was in this, you know, two, two football fields by two football fields. And in the middle was the temple. And the temple was 15 stories tall, 15 stories wide, it was made out of white stone, almost like a marble that would glisten, uh, high, high gloss. And it was covered uh, in parts of it with, uh, with gold. And so from a distance, as you went to Jerusalem, it looked like this snow-capped uh, snow mountain glistening in the side. And it was, so it was this massive place. And so uh, as Jesus would have walked up the, the steps that day, these big steps, you, you, you come through the, the huge gates. And once you step inside these massive walls that, that are, could kind of wall off the complex, Inside are these huge pillars. You kind of picture they're big Roman pillars. And, and on top of them, you know, the, the stone slabs, and so they're like a, um, it's, they call it a portico, like a big porch, a huge porch. And it went all around the perimeter of the temple, and that's where you teach and meet and so on like that. Now, if you went in further, uh, there were certain areas where you could go, certain areas where you couldn't go. Like if you were a Gentile, you could only go into the first area. In fact, they actually have this area called the, the Court of the Gentiles. If Gentiles went anywhere else, they were killed by the Romans. It was a Roman lot. It was actually inscribed on a banister there. You came to a certain point. Gentiles past this point will be killed. And so Gentiles could only go to one point. Now, as you went closer to the temple in the middle, we tend to think of temple like church, like you go in and sit down and have a service. That's not how temple worked. Temples where God lives. And so you don't go in there unless you're a priest of a certain kind at a certain times of the year to offer incense and that sort of thing. So as you get closer to the temple, uh, what happens is it gets more and more restricted. At a certain point, Gentiles can go. Then they have to fall off. Now Jews can go. You get closer. Now only Jewish men can go. You're getting closer. Now only priests can go. You're getting closer. Now only certain priests on certain days of the year can go in the temple. Can you kind of picture all this? And so there in the southeast corner of the temple complex is what is called the Court of the Gentiles. And this is the place that was set aside so the nations of the earth could come and come close to the God of Israel and learn about him and pray there and begin to seek the true God and find the true God. Well, what had happened, the religious leaders, as we've seen, are always kind of messing things up. They're like, ah, Gentiles, who cares about them? Let's turn it into a market. Let's sell like CDs. No, just kidding. Uh, uh, let, let's sell, uh, let, yeah, let, let's sell, uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll sell sheep and goat and, and doves for sacrifice. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll set up a money uh, currency exchange. So it doesn't matter what country of the world you're coming from, what kind of currency you can, you can trade it into our local currency needed to pay things at the temple. Um, and, and we'll sell souvenirs. You know, I was there in Jerusalem, Passover 08 or whatever, you know, it's just, yeah, I'll get the hat. Uh, and, uh, and so, so, uh, so this area, that, to catch this, this was supposed to be a place where you met God. They had turned it into a money-making scheme. Uh, I think much like today, you think of uh, some, not all, but anyway, but some of the, kind of the, the TV preacher type things where, you know, you send me your $5, God will bless you back, you know, that kind of thing. And, and you look at that and you go, oh, my gosh. And it's just like they're taking religion and, and trying to, to, to make a buck off it. And so... Uh, that kind of a th situation was going on. And, and so Jesus goes into this area. He's been there before. He knows this place. He goes in. He goes back, probably back where the cattle, the sheep, and the, you know, it's kind of manure back there. It's smelly. But he's looking for ropes. You know, whenever you have, like, you're herding animals, there's always ropes around. And so he, he finds some ropes, and he carefully uh, kind of makes a, a whip out of these ropes. And then uh, he just cuts loose. And he goes crazy. 
Now, I don't, I don't know what it was like what internally, what he was feeling, but I think if you were there watching him, I mean, he guy is going crazy. This is an act of violence. This is an act of, of a prophet going wild. This is God on the rampage. And, and what we're going to see is this, this is not just like, a, excuse me, could you please leave? You know, this is uh, terror. He, this place is packed with Jewish pilgrims. You know, during, pil- uh, during Passover, uh, some historians, historians will tell us that hundreds of thousands of pilgrims would come to Jerusalem. The place is packed. It's, uh, it's Passover week. The temple is going to be full, and yet Jesus is going to drive out from this whole area everyone, everything, all the animals single-handedly. I mean, he's going berserk. You know, it's just like uh, this is uh, brute force in action. And so we had in verse 14, so he, he makes a whip out of cords, and he drove from the temple area. I, I'm kind of picturing rawhide, you know. It's like a cattle drive or something. Uh, and, and he's... Uh, uh, Verse 40, in the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, doves, others sitting at tables, exchanging money. And so he makes a whip out of cords, and he drives all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. And he scatters the coins of the money changers, and he's overturning their tables. Just kind of picture this. He's like a one-man wrecking crew. He's a tornado. He's flipping over things and screaming and yelling and just shouting, you know, the whole thing. And, man, I wish I could have been there. And... And so anyway, it, when he gets to the dove sellers, now it's just this is going to be a bad day to be a dove seller. And I, and I don't know, like, why? Why he picks on the dove sellers. But uh, he, to those who sold doves, maybe it's because doves were for the poor. Maybe that's why. I don't know. But to those who sold doves, he says, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market. And how he is just going wild. Now, Later on, his disciples remember, verse 17, that, and I, it's probably not that day because they weren't so bright at the time, but at 17, his disciples remember like, later that it's written, and there's this prophecy about the Messiah in Psalm 69 that says, zeal for your house or passion for your house will consume me. And later on, they're going, man, I, we saw that. We were there. You know, he, that guy was consumed. He, he was so passionate about people's relationship with God. And he was so passionate about anything that gets in the way of our relationship with God. And these religious leaders were putting up obstacles, getting in the way of people coming to the God of Israel. And he is just freaking out. He's like, this is horrible. And he's, he's just letting loose. And so the disciples remember this. Interesting, because, of course, later on, um, we'll, we'll, we'll see how zeal for his house really does consume him literally. Uh, let me do a little sidebar here for a second. If you're going to read all the, the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every one of them has an account of the cleansing of the temple. The interesting thing is, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all place this cleansing at the end of Jesus' life, at the third Passover, right before he's arrested. In fact, what, that's one of the precipitating events that leads to his arrest and his murder. And uh, John puts it here at the beginning. And so some scholars believe that this is really the same event, but it's just uh, placed it differently. John's put it at the beginning for topical reasons, which the gospel writers sometimes do. Sometimes they, they group events by topic, not by chronology. And that's fine. Um, but other scholars say, no, I don't think so. There's enough differences between this event and the event at the end of his life that we think they're two separate events. Uh, and I would tend to agree with that. It seems to me that John's really placing this intentionally at the beginning of his ministry. It seems to me that what's happening is at the very start of his ministry, Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he's, he's, he's firing a shot over the bow of the Jewish nation saying, you had better wake up, there's a new Messiah in town. It's like uh, there's a new sheriff in town. It's like times have changed. And, and then at the end of his ministry, uh, he comes and gives the final warning shot you know, for which they, they kill him. Um, but one of the differences between the two accounts is here it says, how dare you turn my father's house into a market. In the other accounts, he quotes from the Old Testament, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and he says, uh, God has said that my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations, um, and you have turned it into a den of robbers or thieves, kind of rip-off artists. But here's the point, whether it's one event or two, I tend to think it's two, but whether it's one or two, um, the point is the same, that these religious leaders, what, what Jesus is so angry about 
is that they've taken this place that's supposed to be a place where heaven and earth meet, where you meet God, and they've turned it into a religious money-making scheme, and they put up obstacles that keep people from meeting God. And that's what Jesus hates. That's what his passion about. Jesus is passionate about anything that gets in people's way, especially religious things that keep people from coming to him. Okay, so let's go on. In verse 18, so the Jews, let's talk about the Jewish leaders at this point. The Jews demanded of him, well, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Like, you're, you're acting as if you're a prophet. So well, can you give us, like, a sign, give us some proof, give us a miracle, uh, do, do something, do a trick, you know, that show us that you're really from God. You know, pull up a snake, throw it down, pick it up, it's a rod. You know, do something that's uh, it's kind of a, a, a trick. And so Jesus says this really odd thing. He says, verse 19, okay, I, I got one for you. Uh, destroy this temple. Now, now remember, 46 years in the building, two football fields on each side, massive stones. I mean, to destroy this thing, it would take years to destroy this thing. Uh, in fact, it will be destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Roman armies, and it will take them years. And so uh, destroy this, this temple, which is, seems ridiculous, and then, um, and I will raise it up in three days, which would be quite the sign. Now, of course, they're thinking literal temple. He's actually talking about his body. So the, the Jews replied to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So catch this. They're saying, we want, we want proof that you're really from God. He says, I'll give you proof. Destroy this temple, not, not this man-made building where you think God resides. No, destroy this temple, uh, God in the flesh temple. Remember what he said in John 1.14, the word became flesh and he tabernacled amongst us. See, the true temple of God has come, that God has come in the flesh. And he says, destroy this temple, which they will, and I will raise it up in three days. He says, you want proof that I have the right to be here and doing this? Destroy this temple. Three days I'll rise from the dead. That's your proof that I have the right to do this. Of course, this all went over their head. <laughs> didn't seem to bother Jesus to say things that go over people's head. Anyway, he's like, oh, I'll get it eventually. Uh, and so after he was raised from the dead, his disciples didn't get it either. Uh, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. Like, oh, remember what Jesus said that three years? Remember that? Oh, I get it now. And, uh, and they believed the scripture and they believed the, in the words that Jesus had spoken. So three years later, after he rises from the dead, they go, oh, now we get it. And, and so, wow, that's really, he knew he was going to die at the beginning of his ministry. It gives him confidence in Jesus. But also, of course, all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah dying and coming back to life. So that to, it, now they say, oh, that gives him confidence in the Old Testament, gives him confidence in the words of Jesus. Now, while he was there in Jerusalem that eight, during the eight days for the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing. Uh, apparently he did some miracles while he was there, probably some healings. Uh, and they came to believe in his name. They believed in his name. Now, as we'll see, it's kind of a superficial believing. It's not really buying in. It's not really following him. It's just sort of like, yeah, yeah, what a cool guy. You know, I'd, I'd vote for him, that sort of thing. And, um, but Jesus, verse 24, he would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He knew human nature. He knew how fickle the crowds were. He knew, as we'll see this in the Gospel of John, how fickle the, the crowds were. They're, they're going to believe in him one day, not believe him the next day. And so he doesn't entrust himself to him. Interestingly, in the Greek, it literally says this, that they believed in him, but he did not believe in them. That's what it says. And uh, verse 25, he did not need man's testimony about man, about human nature, for he knew what was in a man. And so, and so we come to this second event in the life of Jesus. Uh, this, you got the, the wedding at Cana. Uh, you see one side of God. You see uh, this cleansing the temple, you see another side of Jesus. And so in the time that we have today, uh, I want to unpack this, this kind of this story that we've, this event, and talk about implications for our life, both understanding who God is and what it means to be a Christ follower in our life. And so there in your note sheet is a section called Jesus and Judgment, the two sides of God. And so uh, let's jump in. Number one, uh, First is Jesus has two sides. Uh, he's both tough 
and tender. I think the first thing that jumps out at me from this event, that we've, the story we've started today, is that Jesus has two sides. Now, if you were here last week, we looked at this one side of Jesus. We, we saw Jesus, 150 gallons of wine. He's the life-affirming God who's come to give us life. doesn't care where you've come from or what you've done or where you've been. He's for you, not against you. He's come to give you life. And we saw this picture, this life-affirming God. It's Messiah type, right? So we see that last week. That's one side of Jesus, kind of what I call the tender side of Jesus. And then this week we see a totally different side of Jesus, a Jesus that comes into the temple, makes whips, and starts tearing things up. You see, the second side of Jesus, kind of the, the tough side of, of Jesus. And I think in this opening chapter of John, in, in John chapter 2, I think John, in a sense, is giving us kind of a picture of who Jesus is and the whole message of the Gospel of John in a single chapter. And it's kind of two sides. And, and I want to show you uh, uh, both sides of this. Uh, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to chapter 3 in John. Now, next week, we'll start going into John chapter 3, and it's the story of Jesus' conversation, one of the most famous conversations in the history of the world, with a uh, kind of a religious PhD, one of the top teachers in Israel at the time, a man named Nicodemus. And in this conversation, Jesus is going to lay out for him that the reason that he has come is to die, that he comes to give us life. And so then there's a statement made. Uh, some believe it's made by Jesus. Some believe it's made by John. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that when we get to the passage. But, but uh, there's a statement made that kind of where, where the author is summing up the whole message of Jesus. And he says, for God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him, commits to him, follows him, will not be destroyed, but have life forever. He'll have life now and it'll last forever. And then John goes on to write, John the, the apostle goes on to write in verse 17, and he says something really fascinating. It kind of shows us his two sides of Jesus, two sides of God. He says in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. This is the first thing you have to understand is that Jesus did not come in the world to condemn the world. Is the world messed up? Yes. Are we the fallen planet? Yes. Are we rebellious people? Yes. Do we deserve to die? Yes. Do we deserve to be condemned? Yes. But he did not come to condemn us. He's not like a building inspector that came to planet Earth to condemn us, shut down our building, shut down our life. He, he did not come. He's more like a, a person who came, like a doctor who came with a vaccine to save the race. Right? He's more like... Uh, a ship that comes to the Titanic with lifeboats to get you off before it goes down. He didn't come to condemn us. He came to rescue us. And so then he goes on and he says, um, so he didn't come to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And so whoever believes in him, and remember what believe means in John 2, to buy in, to follow. It doesn't just mean a nod to God. It's like, yes, you are the one. I'll follow you. I'll give you my life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. And so here's the good news of, of the message of Jesus, that it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, God loves you, and, and that he has not come to condemn you. And the very moment that you make the decision to follow Jesus in your life and to trust him with your life, that very moment, you pass from death to life. And at that very moment, uh, the sentence over your life is dropped. And you don't have to worry until... What's going to happen at the end of your life when you stand before God? Because you're no longer condemned. You're, you're forgiven here and now. The sentence is, is done. Right? So, so the one who believes is not condemned. Okay, so are you with me? This is the tender side of God. This, this is the God who loves you. doesn't matter where you've come from. You can be forgiven and start new life right here, right now, based on Jesus' death. That's the tender side of God. But now we're going to see the tough side of God. He says, uh, middle of verse, but whoever does not believe stands what? Condemned. Let's say it again. It's just good for us. Whoever, whoever does not believe stands condemned. Now, this is not a word our culture likes today. We don't like to think about condemnation. We like to think that God is a God who loves everybody under all situations. No matter what you do, just go to a funeral. You'll hear this. Everyone's getting in, right? 
And so, so we are not comfortable as a culture with the, con- with the concept of condemnation. We're not comfortable with the idea of the tough side of God. But notice what it says, that whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the Son of God. Notice, he's not condemned because of what he's done. <laughs> he's not condemned because he's evil or he's rebelled against God, though that's true. That's not why he's condemned. He's condemned because he refuses to take the vaccine. He refuses to get on the lifeboat, get off the Titanic. See, the condemnation comes because you refuse the remedy. That's the condemnation. Let's go on. Verse 19. Now, here's the verdict. So, where it's a court scene, you're going to be condemned. These people are going to be condemned. What's the verdict? Is the verdict that you've done evil and therefore you are going to be condemned? No, that's not the verdict. Here's the verdict, that light has come into the world. In the Gospel of John, in the Bible, light stands for what is good and right and true. And so here's the verdict, is that Jesus has come in the world, light has come. He said, here is the path to life. Here's what's good. Here's what's right. Here's what's true. Here's the path. So light has come. He's exposed the darkness. That's what's evil, destructive, damaging. Okay? So, so light has come in the world. But men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. So he says, so here, here's the verdict. When someone says condemned, it's not, you're not condemned because of what you've done, though you deserve to be. You're condemned because God has sent a way out to have a whole new life and to embrace the light. And you will not let go of your darkness. And so it's like you're like a person that doesn't want to leave the party on the Titanic because I'm having fun, right? And so, so God says, okay, but the Titanic is going down. This is the only way off the ship. This is the only way. This is the only vaccine that will keep you from dying. And so if you refuse the vaccine, if you refuse the lifeboat, you're going down. You see, this is the tough side of God. And so, so here's, here's the issue. So, so we see in this opening chapter of John, chapter 2, you see this, this, this message about who Jesus is. He is this life-affirming Messiah where the, the hills run with wine. It's all about giving you life as it's supposed to be. But there's a flip side, that if you refuse the life, all that's left is death. And, and that's what happened to the religious leaders. That's why Jesus goes in the temple. That's what he's acting out. If you guys, the light has come. If you refuse to receive it, all that's left is to face the God of Israel with all his wrath and all his judgment because he will clean up this universe. He will destroy all that's evil. He will destroy all that destroys. And so if you refuse to be changed to be a new person, then you will get destroyed. And that's the tough side. Now, Here's the challenge for us as believers. I think that uh, as you look at our culture today, we're a culture that loves to embrace what I call the tender side of God, don't we? That this, if you stop and think about it, in our Western culture, especially here in the United States, this is the God of our culture, the tender side. It's like, the, where did our culture get the idea that God is love? They got it from the Bible. It's like if you go to other cultures of the world, they don't have this concept that God is love. I was watching a documentary the other day on blind children in Thailand and how people treat them as morons and so mean to them because they believe that they're, they are like they are because they, they messed up in another life. And so it, there's no love there, right, because, because your whole worldview is, that, is totally different. The reason our culture is like it is with a God of love, a God who blesses us and we all go to heaven, the reason is because our culture was rooted in the Bible. And what we've done is we've embraced the one side of God. We've let go of the other side of God. And so here's the message for us. As followers of Jesus, we can get sucked into this. We can get infected with the culture of of our culture. We can become like the world around us. And so, and so when that happens, what we, under, what we fail to understand is that Christ followers, at the core of being a Christ follower, is leaving the darkness. Are you with me in this? 
that as a definition of a Christ follower is I'm leaving the darkness for the light. And that anyone who's not willing to leave the darkness is not a Christ follower, no matter what they say they believe about Jesus. They're like the crowds in Jerusalem that believed in him, but Jesus wouldn't entrust himself. There's no relationship there. You see, the Jesus, remember we talked about this, that, God, that Jesus has come to reveal God. Remember First John, uh, or John 1, 18, no man has seen God at any time, but God the one and only is that the Father's side has revealed him. We've, we've said this. All through this series, we're going to see who God is by looking at Jesus. Well, here he's revealing a truth about who God is, that to leave, that, that God is a God of love, but God is a God of light. Two of the statements in Scripture, God is love, God is light. And that to follow the God of love, we have to follow the light. It's impossible to be a follower of Jesus and to embrace darkness as a lifestyle. Now, once you catch on to this, uh, it's all throughout the New Testament. And there's so many passages. We go, First John, if anyone claims to, to, to know God but walks in darkness, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. Over and over again, we'll see this in Scripture. But I want to show you one specific example. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is an example of this. Now, the story in 1 Corinthians... Uh, the Corinthians had come out of a, a wild and pagan culture. They'd come to Christ, had been baptized, started a new life. But apparently there were some of them who didn't really get this leaving of darkness. They thought it was possible to believe in Jesus and yet still live in the, the old, old ways. And so there's a lot of major problems going on in the church. You've got, you've got people sleeping around with other people, and, and the church knows about it, and they're just kind of winking at it. Oh, no big deal. Uh, you've got people uh, ripping each other off financially and business dealings, and church knows about it, and like, whatever. You've got uh, 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 people taking each other to court. This is a mess. And so Paul comes to me and says, hey, time out. Let's talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He says, hey, bottom line is that if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to leave your life of wickedness. Like, if you think you can embrace a life of wickedness and, and you're in the kingdom of God, you're, you're deceiving yourself. It's not the way it works. And so he says here in chapter 6, and starting at verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, you, got, you guys got it all wrong. I know you're baptized. I know you're going to church. But, hey, if, if you're living a wicked lifestyle, I'm not talking about, every, you know, you fall sometimes, we ask for repentance. But I'm talking about embracing a wicked lifestyle, defending that lifestyle. You're stuck in that lifestyle. You, no, this is fine to follow. It's, this is fine for me to sleep with my, my boyfriend. That's, that's just fine. I think it's fine to do that. Uh, this is fine for me to, to run a business and charge people more than, than they really should and kind of, you know, pad the bills. Everyone does it. And, and I, I couldn't stay open if I didn't. And, and, you know, well, yeah, yeah, okay, I said all these wrong things about them, slandered them, but, but you know, it's no big deal. They, they hurt me, so I, I can do that. So, uh, it's, we're kind of in that lifestyle. We're defending that lifestyle. Uh, we're not changing that lifestyle. We're continuing in it. He says, uh, do you not know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's the bottom line. He says, do not be deceived. Now, when the Bible says, do not be deceived, what's it telling you? It's telling you it's possible. He said, I'm warning you. Like, the Bible never wastes its breath. Like, hey, don't be deceived. God's good. <laughs> See, you know, it's like, no, it's, gonna be, it's, gonna, it's warning you of something coming that's easily deceived. He says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. So what's that? Sex outside marriage. Living together. Homosexuality. Adultery. He's got to spell some of this out. Uh, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, uh, not a real big problem in the USA right now, um, nor adulterers, uh, okay, so he's kind of spelling out some examples of sexual morality, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, okay, kind of, you know, stealing things, nor greedy, nor drunkards, you know, kind of party, or, hey, it's Friday night, I'm going out with this, I, I know, I probably shouldn't, but, you know, Hey, everyone does. I know lots of Christians who do. And okay, so we smoke a little, so we get a little high. But what's the big deal? It's not hurting anybody. And you know, uh, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, kind of rip it, rip up, will inherit the kingdom of God. So he's kind of so he's, let me let me make it clear here. He said, if you call yourself a Christian, 
you claim to be a follower of Jesus, and you're doing this, and this is your lifestyle, and you're defending it, you're deceived. You are not getting in. You're not part of the party. That, okay, so that's, there's the tough side of God, right? There's the, the accountability. That's the tough side. Now we see the tender side. He says, and that is what some of you, what's it say? That's what some of you were. He says, that's who you were. That your, your church is filled with people like this. You're adulterers, you're male prostitutes, you're slanderers, you're greedy, you're a rip-off artist. This is who you were. You see? So God doesn't care where you're coming from. He just loves you, wants to bless you, wants to give you a whole new life. But you have to leave the, the darkness. And he says, uh, verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, set apart. You were justified or forgiven in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit. And so you see the two sides of God. Now, in chapter 5, we won't turn there, but in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, uh, he takes it to the next level. And he says this, he says, hey, if you're in a church and you're part of your church and you know people are living in high-handed sin, they're sleeping around, they're ripping people off, what are they in? He says, as a church, you have a responsibility to hold those people accountable. And he says, and if you don't, God will hold your church accountable. And he said, so if someone claims to be a Christ follower, that's the key. Now, if, if they haven't come to Christ yet, they can do whatever they want. And they come to Rocky Peak, we're happy. You know, they're checking out Jesus. It's great. But when they decide to become a Christ follower, then you're, they're in your life group, they're in your church, they're in your ministry or whatever. They're coming, and they're living in this high-handed, clear sin. And he gives out a whole long list of examples. And they refuse to leave it. He says, at that point, you have to ask them to leave your church. You, you can't have it in the church of Jesus. You can't say, I want the God of love without having the God of light. You, you can't, you, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to leave the darkness. It's a non-negotiable. And so you have to ask them, you can't be in our life. You can't be in our church. You, Here's the principle. You can either embrace the light, you can have the light and also have the fellowship, or you can reject the light and let go of the fellowship. You cannot embrace darkness and embrace the fellowship, you see? And so there's a powerful lesson here. I think in this opening story of, of John, uh, there's a powerful lesson for us as Christ followers that, that God is both life and he's light. And as Christ's followers, to follow, we have to leave the darkness. And, and it's such an important lesson for us because to follow Jesus well, we need both truths, don't we? Because most of the time in our life, the reason we're going to follow Jesus and trust Jesus and give our life to Jesus and do the hard things and obey him is because we love him and because we know he loves us and because we trust him even if we can't see it. We believe he's for us and not against us. And 90% of the time, that's going to keep us doing the right thing. But there's going to be times in our life where you are weak, times in your life of great temptation, and that's not going to motivate you. And what you need to know at those times is that you are going to get spanked and spanked hard if you get off track, that there is a price to pay. It's much like a father. You know, like when my kids were young, Ah, we had a great relationship, and I loved them, and they loved me, and they knew that I was for them and not against them, and I would do anything for them. I would gladly give my life for them. And so I was with them, and because of that, they trusted me, and they followed my instructions, and they obeyed me. But they also knew that if they ever chose not to obey me, there was a price to pay, and it was going to be painful, right? And this is what happens with a family. They knew that dad loves them, but don't mess with dad. And as followers of Jesus, we need to understand this because there's going to be times in your life or times in mine when the temptation is so great or we're so weak and it's so much like, wouldn't God just want me to be happy? You know? And I'm sure it's okay, and I know a lot of Christians that do, and I think it's all right, and God forgives me anyway, and I'll ask forgiveness later. And our mind starts going. And at those times, we need to know, look out, don't mess with God, right? Because the same Jesus who creates gallons of wine in Cana picks up a whip in the temple. And he's got two sides, right? Because he loves us, he will not let us get away with it. And that discipline can be painful. Okay, number two. The second principle 
is that Jesus hates religion, but he loves relationship. And we've talked about this some the last couple of weeks, so I want to drive it home. There's another great illustration of it here is that, that as you study the life of Jesus, a couple of things emerge. One thing emerges is that, that his greatest enemies were religious people. Uh, they were the ones who ended up putting him to death. And so religion was the greatest enemy to Jesus. Um, also, that Jesus points out that religion is one of the greatest enemies in our life. Like, it's one of the things that can derail us as Christ's followers or keep us from having a true relationship with God is man-made religion, where we kind of add rules and regulations where God has not spoken until it just sucks the life out of us. And, and you see this ongoing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders throughout his ministry. You see it today in, in the temple. You know, it's interesting. Catch this. Jesus never makes a whip and goes into a bar. Have you ever, ever done on you? Uh, Jesus never goes into a strip club, goes in the back, makes a whip. All right, you guys had it. Get some clothes on, you know. Uh, the, the only time Jesus makes a whip is in church. Why? Because it drove him crazy when religious people would keep people from coming to God and having a true relationship. And you see it all through his life. You see it, um, uh, one passage you want to look at is the very end of his life, the last week. This, he cleanses the temple on a Monday, the last week of his life, that, the second cleansing. Later in that week, he's talking to the religious leaders. This is his kind of grand finale shot over the bow for them. And I want you to look at it in Matthew chapter 23. And I want you to see how he, how he hates their religion that keeps people from God. Kind of hates man-made religion. In Matthew 23, in verse 13, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law. Now, it's never a good day when Jesus starts off and his opening words are woe. It's never a good sign. Uh, it's a sign of judgment. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, spiritual leaders, you hypocrites. Catch this. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. He says, I've come to bring you the kingdom of God. I brought my movement, the kingdom, and this new invitation to relationship with God. What kills me about you is that not only are you not willing to enter in, with all your religious rules and traditions, you're keeping everyone else from entering in. Just irritates me. It ticks me off. And he goes on and gives some examples. Look at verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices. You know, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were supposed to give 10% of all they, their assets and their earnings and so on to the Lord. We call it a tithe. These spiritual leaders, these religious leaders, were really into tithing. In fact, they often wouldn't eat food unless they knew it had been tithed on. And they were so into tithing that they would tithe their herbal gardens. And, and so he says here, uh, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, kind of doing the right thing in courts. Mercy and faithfulness. And so this is what religion does. Religion always majors on the minors and minors on the majors. It blows things out of proportion and often adds things that God never even said. Now look what he says. He says, you should have practiced the latter, the more important things, without neglecting the former. So he says, tithing, that's a good thing. You should have done, that's great. But you shouldn't neglect these other more important things. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. It's a little humor. Um, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the dish and cup. Remember we saw that last week, all in the ceremonial washings, these man-made rules that God didn't require. But inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You're like all about the externals and looking good, but you've never let God to change you from the inside out and become new people. Give you a new heart. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and the outside will also be clean. 
And so what we see here is how Jesus hates religion, man-made religion that keeps us from God and anything that puts obstacles in our way. And can I tell you something? This is what I want you to catch. The moment a man or a woman decides to follow Jesus, one of the inherent dangers of following Jesus and pursuing God is becoming religious. See, the pagan doesn't have to worry about becoming religious. Not to worry about becoming legalistic or putting obstacles. They're not pursuing God. But the moment a man or woman decides, I'm going to pursue Jesus, from that moment on, one of the enemy's greatest schemes in their life is to turn them into a religious person. Religious people like these, that keep people. And so what does that mean for us? It means as a church, we have to stand against this. We have to say, no, we will stand with Jesus. We will stand with the New Testament. And we will reject man-made teaching that adds rules or regulations to the teachings of Jesus that strangle our spiritual life and that put up obstacles that keep people from coming to Jesus. And we will keep coming back, and we will run everything we believe and everything we do through the life and teaching of Jesus, and we will reject kind of a man-made legalism that keeps people from, from coming to God. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul has this great statement. I put it there in your note sheet, 2 Corinthians 10.5. It says, uh, we, he's talking about as apostles, we, he says, what, what our job description is, is we demolish arguments and every pretension, things that pretend, that, that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. He says, that's my job description. I go around, I just demolish arguments, kind of wrong concepts of God. And see, this is what happens. When Jesus comes into our life, it, he wants to demolish wrong images of God, wrong teaching that we've received that keep us from experiencing the life that he came to give us. And Paul says, this is my job description. My job is to go around, I demolish arguments and things that pretend to be true about God that they really aren't. Everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And so as we go through the Gospel of John, we want to let Jesus continue to demolish arguments, demolish things that pretend. Who is God like? Oh, he's like, he's like the Jesus of Cana. Oh, but he's also like the Jesus of Jerusalem in the temple, you see. And we have to embrace both. And if that conflicts with our view of who God is, we have to let Jesus demolish the arguments, demolish the things that pretend, and embrace this God who's revealed himself in Christ, who loves us more than anything else in life, come to give us life, hates religion, loves relationship, and yet gives us the message that if we're going to pursue God, that we have to leave the darkness. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this second view of Jesus who comes through our life and calls us to leave the darkness, to leave the dark side, and to join the light. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us as a church to embrace both sides, to, to embrace the friendship, but also to embrace the fear that we need both to know you well, and to walk with you into the path of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.